Good morning, everyone. I bring you Christian greetings in the Lord's name this morning. In the name of Jesus, it's a blessing to feel the warmth and the Christian fellowship that has already been expressed here today, and I believe is present. Judging from our Sunday school, I would say uh, we, we came today with our cups full. Many did. Um, and that's okay. Did you know it's okay to come to church with your cup already full? And let that overflow into um, the cause and, and the effort into what we assemble ourselves together for. The whole purpose is to release some of that energy that hopefully the Lord has been uh, bringing into your life through the week. Now, if your cup's empty, we're here to minister to that, too. If that's the season of, of what you're going through now, we as a brotherhood, we rally around those with, with their needs and with their weaknesses in the spirit of truth and love. And by the grace of God, we desire to walk in the strength of the Lord here this morning. I think your presence here indicates that you place a value on the things of God. No one is making you attend church here this morning. There may be different reasons that motivate why we do a thing, but you know, we have a sense of duty. But I don't know that anyone is drug here kicking and screaming to the assembly of the Lord this morning. And that tells me that we place a value in some degree or other on what God says is good. And I think it's fair to say that, that we place a value on eternal things because we value ourselves. Ephesians says that no man yet ever hateth his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes, even as the Lord the church even as the Lord, the church. And, you know, the Lord identifies with his church, maybe you could say in that sense, as we identify with our flesh. It is close to us. We have a personal connection there. And we, we do what we do, you could say, because we, we have an interest in our own welfare, in our own eternal being. That's good and proper. You know, I've thought of, of how we, you can recognize it in the old sacrificial system of offering animals. The call was and the instruction was for those animals to be, to be um, without blemish. They were not to be blind or maimed or lame or sick. They, they were supposed to be perfect. They were supposed to be something that represented value. And I think part of that, there, there may have been a couple reasons for that. There was a willingness, I think, that that brought out on the part of man, a surrender to give that which was best to God and to make that sacrifice. That was certainly part of the picture. It showed a, a spirit of willingness in, in the sense where David said, neither will I offer burnt offerings and sacrifices of that which cost me nothing. He recognized that it, it required something of himself, a, a sacrifice, to offer to God in that regard. 
But I thought of another thing that spoke to me in Leviticus chapter 22. I invite you there just to read briefly. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 20. It says, But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And I looked at that, and, I, and it, it spoke to me. In, in other words, in God's sight, I believe what he's saying, we are worth more than a cheap sacrifice. In other words, the, the significance of the value of the, of the thing that was to be sacrificed also spoke to the value of that which was to be redeemed. And um, this, I think, could be a reflection of why God also wanted a perfect sacrifice, because it spoke to the worth of, of our souls and the value of what he saw in us, in redeeming us. It took more than just a cheap sacrifice. He wanted something that reflected uh, value in, in the redemption, in the thing that it was to be redeemed. You know, an illustration of this could be when a, a kidnapper would demand a ransom to, for the safe return of a child. And he would place that burden on you to pay that in exchange for receiving your child back. And the high cost, sometimes he would demand a fair ransom, a high cost. Um, I think in that high cost, that corresponds to the value of what he had and that what you want in return. So God says it shall not be acceptable for you. I think he's wanting to communicate that we are worth something to him. Jesus said you are worth more than many sparrows. You know, if Jesus ever uttered a, an understatement, that may be one. <laughs> You're worth more than all the sparrows, actually. So the worth of a soul cannot be um, calculated mathematically. And so for a message today, I would like to look further at a uh, verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. This is a short verse, a familiar verse. And I'm only going to read part of it here this morning. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I want to condense that verse just to that thought for the emphasis that I believe is contained here. To deny means to refuse or to reject, to renounce, to abandon. It means to not approve of, to not support, to not to agree to or admit to. All those definitions could go into to what it means to deny. There's a couple concepts here. Godliness, I think we can make some conclusion. Godliness has a form. It does have a legitimate form to it. It's not that I want to throw away the form of, of godliness or disparage that it might exist because the Bible talks about having a pattern 
of good works. And I think that shows itself uh, very truth, truthfully in, in how we live, in the things we do, in the patterns that develop because of godliness. Another, another statement you could make is that godliness has power. There is a power to godliness that is part of that picture. This verse would teach us that there is a, a power that is a, to accompany godliness and the forms thereof. And so, in that picture, we also recognize that it is teaching that there is a supposed godliness that can be just that. It can only be the form. And it does not have the power that is meant to be part of that picture. So what is this power that it speaks of? I would, I would title the message this morning, The Power of Godliness. The Power of Godliness. I think certainly we'd say it, it is the power to save a soul. We would say it is the power to, to live above sin and to uh, refrain from sin. And we would, we would say it is the power we have to rise above defeat on a personal level. I think it's all those things are good. And in all of these um, goals and motives, you could say a lot of it is, is unseen. It's, it's a thing that's taking place internally where, you know, you can't just put a, a finger on it and say, here it is right here and now. Um, there are evidences of that power. And, you know, we speak of, of the resurrection power. Philippians chapter 3 speaks of wanting to know the power of his resurrection. And incidentally, also, along with the power of the resurrection, we have the fellowship of his sufferings. That's the part we don't often like to talk about. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about knowing or experiencing. It speaks of experiencing and knowing what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward usward who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this world but in that world which is to come and has put all things under his feet and has gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all that is a passage of scripture exalting the Christ whom we serve the Christ we look for his appearing he ascended in power. He intercedes in power for us. But yet, in that thought and in that passage is that we are to be partakers and recipients and receivers in which we carry out that same resurrection power. That is a, a marvelous thought to consider. 
and to vest ourselves in, into that effort to see that happen in our experience to where we know it. Knowing is more than just a knowledge. It is also, in this context, I believe it is to um, have an experiential knowledge. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. I'll start at verse 10. It says, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Maybe we look at that quickening work as something that is reserved for the next life. To, to quicken means to vitalize, to cause to live, to give life to. Our mortal bodies, that word mortal means subject to death, liable to die, and certainly in, in the grand scheme of this, in the, in the fullness of this um, truth, our mortal bodies will be changed. But there is a quickening, he says, of your mortal body. I believe that is a power and a strength that is uh, understood to be a part of our now experience. There is a quickening that takes place. God is able to quicken us and to, to uh, benefit spirit, soul, and body. He's not limited to just the spiritual realm. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul talks about a, uh, he brings up an, an event or a, a situation where there was, where there was uh, a problem. And he said, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. It's possible to be dead while you're living. No, that's not a good thing. Um, we want to be alive while we're living, right? That's a little better deal. So I think Romans 8, verse 11, can shed a little bit of light on what this power is. It is by his spirit that dwelleth in you. It is closely connected to the Spirit of God. If it dwells in you. I think there's different levels to this. There's different magnitudes to the work of the Spirit on a person's life. I think we should pursue greater uh, depth of that work of that Spirit. Interesting in the in the book of, of Numbers, God told Moses to pick out seventy elders of Israel, those that were had some leadership um, given that office. He he told them to bring them to the tabernacle, and I'm going to take of the spirit that is on you, Moses, and put on these seventy men in order that they may better be able to serve and bring about 
the work that needed to be done and dealing with the the people that at that point they started to develop problems with complaining and so God was raising up some men he was going to put the spirit on him and it, that when that spirit rested it said it rested upon these 70 men they began to prophesy there was a visible um, sign of this that took place there was a power that began to have a quickening work and I, and I don't know what that prophesying was I, I can imagine that they begin to speak the things of God and to proclaim and to declare things that God was doing even as Moses had done maybe we don't really fully understand the, the lack of the Spirit of God and what what you have in the absence of that but I believe that it is the power of God that the Spirit of God would have an opportunity to manifest itself in the natural realm in our experiences you know in the in the book of Acts there was the story of Peter and John they told a lame man that silver and gold have I none silver and gold have I none but such as I do have I give I will give to thee and that was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise up and walk could you not say in that experience that lame man received a quickening of his mortal body there was definitely some life that took shape in his mortal man. But that, that, um, that story kind of would give you reason to ask yourself maybe, what are the things that we are able to offer the world above just silver and gold? I often wonder if, if they had had silver and gold, what would they have done with that for the lame man? Would they have helped him out? And very possibly the reason they didn't have silver and gold is because they had already spent that on helping someone else. <clears throat> what do we have to offer besides outside the scope of silver and gold? And I'm not, I'm not saying that silver and gold don't have a purpose. Uh, to be able to help in that way. I'm just saying, is there a power greater that God would like to manifest in the absence of that? Acts chapter 3. Let's turn there. I would just point out a couple things here in this story. Because I think represented in this story, you have, you have a form of godliness, you have godliness and you have the power. It says, now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. You could say that was a form, that ninth hour. There was a schedule. There was something they did. And I think there's, of, of the apostles and some in the Bible, it, it says, as was their custom. They did something according to their custom. Even Jesus did some things according to custom. There was a form there. You could say there is also the, the, uh, 
the, the aspect of godliness here because it talks about it being the hour of prayer. You, you know, what, what, uh, what is prayer if it, if it is not a, a outworking of godliness? Certainly a very important part of that. And then you have the aspect of the power of God being manifest in the healing of the lame man. This lame man, it said he lay daily at this, at this gate. It was a common sight. It was a familiar sight. And often when, when we're um, exposed, you could say, to, to something that just is always there and becomes familiar and common, there, there's a saying that, you know, in, in familiarity can breed some indifference to that situation. And the thought is, well, not again. This same man, you know, he's, everybody knows him, and, and here we go again. And, and maybe walking past that man, how many had the, the, the twinge in their com, conscience, like, you know, I should be helping. Sort of like when you go and you pass by these bell ringers um, during the Christmas season, and, and you're um, at the Salvation Army where they... You know, you feel kind of bad walking past there, and maybe, um, maybe there's there would be good. Maybe that is that conscience is a good part of us to speak to us in that way. You know, the devil doesn't usually encourage you to help people, and so I think there's a place to help people, even though we are are uh, not fully informed of their situation, and by the spirit of God we help in those situations. But I see another thing that was brought out in this, this story that I believe shows where the power of God that comes through in the, in, in the aspects and in the attributes of godliness, it has an authority to it. It, ha it has a capability to speak to a situation where there's maybe some uncertainty. It gives us the ability to take stock of a situation and to bring order and structure and a response to a need that is at hand. Have you ever felt uncertain in the face of, a, say, an unusual circumstance? Or, or something that's a little bit uh, maybe awkward or embarrassing? How do you bring some order and strength to that? Well, I think by the Spirit of God, we, we walk in that authority to do that. Is that notice here in verse 4 it says Peter fastening his eyes upon him we don't avoid the situation we look into people's eyes we there's that thing of eye contact that that's a powerful thing not only did he did he do that he said look on us he commanded the man to do the same you know let's establish some relationship here let's have a connection here and the man did that he he, um, he gave he thinking, I guess, thinking he would receive just the nominal thing of some more assistance in the earth, earthly realm. I noticed something else about this situation. It doesn't say that the man really expressed, verbally expressed, a faith that requested healing or went that route. 
But Peter, by the power of God and by the authority of the Spirit of God, commanded the man to be healed, to rise up and walk. And I think it's easy, easy for us to just say, well, these are things that happened in the book of Acts. They aren't really part of the picture today. They only happened in the early church. They were part of the early church. And so now we don't have that power. We don't walk in that strength. We just dismiss any of that kind of thing. We delegate it only to the book of Acts. But I think a, a better question would be for us to ask, to ask God, or, or maybe to ask ourselves is, what is the strength or the power, the measure of that power that God is calling us to walk in? What do I desire to walk in? Do you think God can fulfill the desires of your heart in that way? Are we pressing into a demonstration of the power of God in maybe a greater measure? <laughs> wow, something more. <laughs> you know, imagine that in the Christian life. Is there something more? I think indeed, yes, there are more and greater things that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. Matthew 5:16 says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. My question is, what are the good works that you do to the level where men would see that and glorify the Father? Is that happening in your life? Is the light that you shine able to demonstrate the power of godliness to the extent that men do glorify the Father which is in heaven. That is the will of the Father. 1 Peter 2.12 says this, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, that... We could say logically that that would certainly help if we could do miracles. I'm not here promoting signs and wonders, I'm not, I'm, but neither am I dismissing them as not a thing of the church and of the Christian church. One of the displays of God's power that leads to the glory of God, of course, is through miracles, but it is also the power of the gospel unto salvation. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 13, verse 44. It says, And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Now you could say that is denying the power of the gospel. There was opposition to it. There was not even any pretense that we want to look godly. <laughs> it, was, it was denying the power in a, in a very ranked, raw form. 
And it says Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout the region. Notice here the... Uh, I believe, I believe it speaks here somewhere in this context of them glorifying God. There was, there was the message of the gospel, but it is not referred to it as the gospel. Notice it at least four times in these verses it talks about the word of the Lord. It was the word of God. It was, it was the, uh, yes, it was just the word of God. And, and Paul even quotes a verse, a reference from Isaiah. Chapter 42 there, in verse 47. There was, uh, there was a power there, and the people recognized it, and they wanted more of it. And there was an opposition to it as well. And in verse 50, it says there was raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and, and they expelled them out of their coast. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples... What was the effect of this? Many of us may have would have despaired or been discouraged or given up and said, well, this isn't working. But it says they were filled with joy and the Holy Ghost. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To be filled with joy in the midst of persecution, that requires a supernatural power. That is not a natural ability. That requires the presence of the Holy Ghost. And so when you have the Word of God, you have the Spirit of God, and you have the people of God, and you have the blood of the Lamb, all working together, there is a supernatural power that begins to break down the strongholds of Satan. You could say we as a church are the number one superpower in this earth to where the gates of hell do not prevail against the church. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Overcometh the world. That is the created order. That word world is the cosmos. It is the arrangement of things that we have around us. This is the victory, John says, that overcomes the world, even our faith. And that thought contained in that word overcometh means to bring the world to its knees. It is the victory that brings the world to its knees or the power. It means to conquer and to be victorious and to prevail and to subdue. I believe it is the presence of the church and of the Holy Spirit 
in the world that is holding at bay a lot of the full manifestations of the man of sin as described in 2 Thessalonians, the man of sin that wants to be revealed. He is seeking to be revealed, but there is a restraining force that is holding. That is the church of God, the word of God, the spirit of God. It says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The goal of the man of sin is to, is to oppose and to exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. And, and while there may be traces and, and little, uh, little feelers that are attempting to do that in the world now, We as a church in the world, we are still here and we are called to cast down imaginations and um, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We're called to cast it down to the pulling down of strongholds. When you pull down of stronghold, <laughs> that, that is, I'm reminded of little boys playing and, and one of them has built a castle and a blocks and the other just has the thrill of coming in and knocking that down do we experience any thrill in God's ability and our call to do that in our world today that sounds like offense to me you know every game has some defense and some offense built into it in in the patterns and in the approaches we take to being victorious And maybe as a church, we're, we focus on defense. How about, how about some offense? Is, is there a place for that in, their, in our world by the power of God? It says, having a readiness to revenge all disobedience. Forms of godliness and the power thereof. Titus 2, 7. Titus 2, verse 7 says... In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. And it lists a number of things there. It says sound speech, sincerity, and the third one was adorning the doctrine of God. Which means to show the beauty of, to bring out the credit of, to do credit to the doctrine of God. And in that thought is that you yourself would be an ornament demonstrating the beauty of the doctrine. These things teach, speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. You notice how many, we've been hearing some of these passages because of our ordination work, how much of God speaking to that office applies to all of us. It is a strength and a power that we all need to walk in. And, and make our goal in the Christian life. First Thessalonians 1.5 says this, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, it came not in word only, but in power, also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. That's one thing that to me and, and to us as we, as we endeavor to teach 
it, it, makes, it makes us vulnerable. It makes us rely on the word of God because in so much that we can share the right words and say all the right things. Is there a power that accompanies that and the Holy Ghost? Is there an assurance that we can communicate and convey to our brothers and sisters in Christ through that power? To where we say, without a doubt, the Lord has his hand on something. It's not a matter of guesswork, but we are convinced and we are assured of the things that we believe because we are experiencing it, but we are also experiencing it in the lives of others. I think it's very powerful. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, but I will come to you shortly, and if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So I guess we could ask, again, we could ask the question, what does that power look like? Certainly it is the power of a soul set free from bondage. It is the power of one who has, who has yielded their life and their will to the will of the Father. That requires power. But in that, there is a thing of beauty. There is a, um, a wonder and a good that flows out of our life because of the power of God. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So I see our duty in the, in the world we live in, not, not just to, to be playing defense and to keep backing into a corner and, and backing farther and up, but we are advancing. That is part of our call as, as people who have put on the armor of God. To walk in strength, we are in a battle. It is a race, like we spoke of this morning. And I'll share one more passage yet. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. It says this, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Now notice that verse in the English Standard Version. It says, the power of godliness, I want to think of this for a second. Suffering produces endurance. That's the word it uses in the ESV. Suffering produces endurance. That is a demonstration of power. In endurance, it says, produces character. That is the power of God very much. Uh, the Christian life and godliness is a character-based work. And so, yes, character has power. And then it says character produces hope. Hope produces the love of God, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. The power of love, you've often heard this where it says that, that love is stronger than hate. How true that is. I think in our day, people are looking 
Maybe they're searching in a, in a little bit of uncertainty about what, what things are about. And I think the, the call is similar to Elijah when, when he said, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. We, we need some confirmation, I think, is a, a work that we can do with our brothers and sisters. I always like that, that passage in, in Acts chapter uh, 15, 32. It says, Paul, uh, Silas, there were two men, Silas and Judas, being prophets themselves, they went to Antioch, they exhorted the, men, the, the brethren there with many words, many words. Maybe, we, maybe that's all the church is. A lot of times we speak a lot. There is a place for words and confirm them. There's, there's a lot of thought built into that word confirmed. If I had the time, I would go into it here this morning. But I hope you came today with your cups already full, overflowing, and that we could be washed in the word of God and, and strengthened to go out and face the battle that is out there. Because this is like an oasis to me, to meet in, in spirit and in truth and to rest in the Lord. And then let, let that prepare us to go forth and to meet the duties and the battles that the Lord has called us to face in this day. I'm going to ask the song leader to lead us in song number 495 in the hymns of the church. Encamped along the hills of light. Let's sing verses 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to ask the congregation to stand as we sing the song. <laughs> 